If we get rid of the problem quickly, everything solves itself. Yeah, tell me about it. Unfortunately, we have to wait till November, it seems. Working on it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on fine internet streaming affiliates such as the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining me and the delightful Desi Doyen for another hour of <laughs> radio today. Yep. Good day. We will be joined by the nation's John Nichols shortly to discuss the very big night for Joe Biden on Tuesday as Democratic primary voters in another six states, Michigan, Washington, Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota, all went to the polls on Tuesday, or tried to, with Joe Biden appearing to win four of those states over Bernie Sanders, who himself appears victorious in at least one, and perhaps two, of those states at the moment. Uh, I also want to share with you the extended remarks of both Joe Biden on Tuesday night after the close of polls, as he was declared the victor in several of those states, including Michigan, the night's uh, biggest delegate prize where Sanders had desperately hoped to stage a comeback after a disappointing showing last week on Super Tuesday, uh, along with uh, Biden's remarkable resurrection, beginning with South uh, the South Carolina primary just about a week and a half ago, and the extended remarks from Bernie Sanders, who also uh, spoke, but not until Wednesday afternoon from his home state of Vermont, to make clear that he intends to keep his candidacy going at least through uh, through Sunday night's scheduled one-on-one debate with the former vice president. Uh, we will get to all of that and John Nichols shortly, but very quickly I want to take note of what is becoming a major, perhaps uh, ultimately even a defining factor in this campaign and in this election, the continuing spread of the coronavirus in this country and the effect that it is having uh, already 
on the campaigns and the election as a whole. Sunday night's head-to-head debate between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders from Phoenix, Arizona, will be held without an audience as a response to concerns about the coronavirus, which also has led to the cancellation of uh, both Biden and Sanders' planned Tuesday night remarks to supporters in Ohio. Those cancellations came as it was announced that the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has now exceeded 1,000, with the number of patients identified having doubled just since Sunday. As of Wednesday afternoon, at least 1,088 people in 40 states in Washington, D.C. have tested positive for coronavirus, according to a New York Times database, and at least 31 patients with the virus have died. The first known U.S. coronavirus case was announced on January 21 in Washington state, but the pace of diagnosis has quickened significantly in recent weeks. At the start of just this month, just over 10 days ago, 70 cases had been reported in this country, most of them tied to overseas travel. Since then, new cases have poured in, first by the dozens, then the hundreds. A majority of the cases were in Washington state, which still remains the hardest hit with 273 patients and 24 fatalities as of Tuesday night. California and New York are the only other states with more than 100 cases as of now. Massachusetts is getting closer with 92 after dozens of new cases were announced on Tuesday. And in South Dakota, the governor announced the state's five first cases there, including one man who died. The number of states with no reported cases stands at about a dozen, and it is declining by the day. Many states have declared states of emergency. Schools are closing. Public events are being canceled. The popular Coachella Music Festival out here in California has now been canceled. That after Austin's South by Southwest was canceled. The Golden State Warriors this afternoon announced that they would be the first NBA team to bar fans from games because of the virus. The NCAA followed that up by announcing that only families and essential staff would be allowed in the audience during the March Madness basketball tournament. Schools, as I said, are being closed. Employees are being told to stay home from work. The entire town of New Rochelle, New York, a suburb north of New York City, has now essentially been locked down entirely. Yes, that is where Rob and Laura Petrie used to live. For those of you who are Dick Van Dyke Show fans, uh, all in an echo of the same emergency measures that took place in Asia just a month ago. The number of patients treated in the U.S. remains a small fraction of those with the virus currently overseas, where thousands of people have died and tens of thousands have been infected. But those emergency measures uh, taken in some parts of Asia appear to uh, be having some effect. That's the good news, if we can find any here for the moment. Mainland China had just 24 new cases reported on Tuesday, 10 of which were imported from overseas, meaning only 14 of the new cases were due to local transmission, community spread, as it's called. That is a huge drop in case numbers, considering China was reporting around 2,000 
uh, new cases uh, per day just a month or two ago. Well, it shows that these social distancing measures actually do work, and we may not be able to achieve the same level of lockdown that the Chinese government was able yep. to achieve. However, at this stage of the crisis, I think it's really smart for people to enact those things that the CDC mm-hmm. is re- recommending as far as social distancing. Correct. And uh, those extreme measures that were taken in uh, uh, some areas of China would be very difficult to at least easily pull off in the U.S., although in some cases we may have to. Not all of the uh, of uh, Asia-Pacific, however, has recovered. Japan has seen an increase in cases in Japan in recent days. According to CNN, it is set to uh, enact an emergency measures bill this weekend. Similar in Australia, where uh, the government has unveiled a new $1.5 billion funding package The number of cases is creeping up there now as well. Italy is still under pretty much complete lockdown with all 60 million residents facing restricted movement. Schools are closed. Public services are suspended. Public events are canceled. Foreshadowing what we could be seeing in the U.S. in the coming days. Cities and public spaces in Italy are reportedly empty, deserted. One 26-year-old in Rome told CNN the restrictions felt similar to times of war. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization, the WHO, made it official, declaring the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis to now be so widespread that it officially qualifies as a global pandemic. Despite these facts and growing concerns about them, the president of the United States continued to downplay the threat posed by the COVID-19 epidemic, once again falsely declaring that testing for the disease was available for all who needed it and asserting that the novel coronavirus would, quote, go away, unquote, with time. Telling reporters of the virus after a meeting with uh, congressional Republicans on Tuesday, quote, just stay calm. It will go away. He's right about the staying calm part. That's <laughs> yeah, the only thing he's, he's half right, right about. Though. Yeah, that clashes with uh, what doctors and scientists, if you believe in them, have to say about it, uh, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He testified before Congress this morning that quote. Things will get worse than they are right now. How much worse they will get will depend on our ability to do two things, to contain the influx of people who are infected coming from the outside and the ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Fauci said, bottom line, it's going to get worse. But Donald Trump told reporters, be calm. It's, quote, really working out after saying that he wanted to protect the shipping, cruise, and airline industries, and no doubt the hotel and golf course industries, I suspect. Separately on Tuesday, Trump told reporters that when people need a test, they can get a test. That, however, is not true, and it clashes with experts uh, who charge that there are not uh, that there is not enough testing capacity to keep up with the virus's spread right now including former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who told USA Today, quote, any doctor who thinks a patient should be tested should be getting tested. But that is not happening right now. Also not yet happening. Trump is refusing to declare a state of emergency, if you can believe it, despite the state of Washington and others begging him to do so. That would free up billions in Medicaid spending that could be used to treat many more people. 
particularly, as I say, of note in Washington, and it would help ease the uh, current congestion of overtaxed local hospitals and other medical facilities, which are having trouble keeping up with the increased pace of cases right now. And with all of that, the Dow closed down another 1,400 points on Wednesday with unease over the coronavirus, plunging the market down now some 20 percent from its recent record high, putting it officially into bear market territory and ending the record 11-year stock market rally begun under Barack Obama. That is just some of the inescapable uh, backdrop for the nonetheless ongoing most critical election in our nation's history. It is not only the backdrop for the election, it also underscores the urgency, once again, of this election itself, no matter who the Democratic nominee ends up being. The urgency to restore competency to the White House and the entire executive branch of the U.S. government. On that... Let's take a break and we will pick up with Tuesday's primary elections in six states and the two remaining major Democratic candidates still battling it out for the party's nomination. I'm Brad Friedman and you are listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, once again, we saw grotesquely long lines for voting in states which held primaries on Tuesday, particularly in some parts of Michigan and North Dakota. In Michigan, videos and photos circulated online Tuesday showing long lines wrapping down hallways and staircases in various locations across the state as young voters waited for hours to cast their ballots in Michigan cities like Kalamazoo, Ann Arbor, and East Lansing. In North Dakota, uh, Christopher Ingram, who's a Washington Post data reporter, tweeted, Long lines reported at some Democratic primary locations in North Dakota. There are only 14 locations for the entire state to vote, only one location in Fargo, a city of 120,000 people. It was reportedly below freezing in Fargo, North Dakota on Tuesday. That is not unusual for this time of year. However, voters were forced to stand in lines that looped way around the parking lot. There must have been 200 or 300 people lined up single file. Uh, outside of the polling place there in Fargo to vote at one location there, according to a video posted on Twitter on Tuesday night. 
Where there were other problems, well, as I always caution, such problems for voters and questions about results often come about days and weeks after Election Day. So for now, since I want to get to the candidate responses after Tuesday's elections, I'll, uh, I'll just run through the currently reported and, yes, wholly unverified numbers from Tuesday, where happily... With the exception of Mississippi, most voters were able to cast a ballot, a hand-marked paper ballot. In Mississippi, however, if there are any questions about the results there, they can most likely never be answered since much of the state obscenely still forces all voters at the polls to vote on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. But I want to make one point here uh, crystal clear before we get to the numbers, since I've seen a lot of, frankly, baseless allegations of late, including over the past 24 hours or so. I have seen no evidence, zero, none of the DNC trying to steal this election from Bernie Sanders. None. I know that uh, establishment types certainly prefer Joe Biden for whatever reason. They have been supporting and endorsing him. But that is a far cry from the DNC rigging or stealing an election. And, you know, we've heard a lot of people make those same claims about 2016. I did not see the evidence there either. And hopefully people who uh, who know me, who listen to this program or who have read the Brad blog for many years, know that I would have no problem at all in calling out the DNC or anyone else if I saw that and, and had independently verifiable evidence to support such a charge. I may uh, have to keep saying that for a while, I'm afraid, since there's a lot of bad, irresponsible information being uh, put out there by so many people under the guise of, uh, of progressive support for Bernie Sanders, who is, frankly, in my opinion, not helped at all by such irresponsible allegations, uh, at least in my opinion and in lieu of independently verifiable evidence to back up those claims. So with that... Very quickly, uh, the numbers that we have as we have them at this hour. Joe Biden appears to have won on Tuesday easily in Michigan, the day's largest delegate prize with 125 delegates up for grabs. Also in Missouri, Mississippi and Idaho on Tuesday all went to Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders took North Dakota and maybe Washington state. We will see. He is currently uh, leading Joe Biden there by just two-tenths of a percentage point uh, over the former vice president with 89 delegates to be divvied up there. So even if this stays uh, pretty much as it is now with uh, uh, Sanders winning by a few points or a few percentages, uh, uh, pieces of a point or Joe Biden doing the same, they're both going to walk out with just about the same split of the delegates out of Washington state. Now, according to the New York Times delegate count, as of this hour, Biden won 184 on Tuesday to 112 over Bernie Sanders so far, expanding on Biden's uh, overall lead in the delegate count as of now with 864 total delegates to uh, Bernie Sanders, 710. That's a roughly 150 delegate lead with another 50 or so to still be doled out from Tuesday's uh, election as counting continues, mainly in Washington state. 
and with four big states set to vote this coming Tuesday, including Florida, Ohio, Arizona, and Illinois. So once again, that's Biden with 864 total delegates right now, Sanders with 710. They would need, either one of them would need 1,991 to wrap up the uh, Democratic nomination at the convention in July on the first ballot. Now, I want to play some extended excerpts from both uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders' response to Tuesday's primaries in six states, since I think they are informative as we head into Sunday's debate and next Tuesday's elections. Uh, and as we prepare to have John Nichols join us here shortly to try and help us make sense of all of this. First up, here's the former vice president and current frontrunner, Joe Biden, after his announced victories in Michigan, Missouri and Mississippi, speaking largely uh, to an, an empty grand hall at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia on Tuesday night after concerns about the coronavirus resulted in cancellation of his live victory party. Lead, leaving a, uh, a huddle of media reporters and campaign staffers as his audience. We were planning uh, a big rally uh, in Cleveland tonight, mm -hmm. but the governor of Ohio asked the presidential campaigns to cancel uh, their indoor public events in Cleveland with large, large crowds of people. And that's what we did due to the coronavirus, and he was concerned about that. To all those who have been knocked down, to all those who have been counted out, left behind. This is your campaign. Just over a week ago, many of the pundits declared that uh, this candidacy was dead. Now we're very much alive. As I said from the beginning, this election is the one that has character on the ballot. The character of the candidates, the character of the nation is on the ballot. It's more than a comeback, in my view, our campaign. It's a comeback for the soul of this nation. This campaign is taking off, and I believe we're going to do well from this point on. Take nothing for granted. Want to earn every single vote in every single state. But if you're willing, if you want to join us, go to JoeBiden.com. We need you. We want you. And there's a place in our campaign for each of you. And I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal, and together we'll defeat Donald Trump. We'll defeat him together. We're going to bring this nation together. We're regenerating a Democratic base, the Democratic Party, the African-American community, high school educated folks like the ones I grew up with in Claymont, not far from here. In my old neighborhood, labor, suburban women, veterans, firefighters, union members, and so many more. People of every economic station. Together we're bringing this party together. That's what we have to do. Tonight, we are a step closer to restoring decency, dignity, and honor to the White House. That's our ultimate goal. And at this moment, when there's so much fear in the country, when there's so much fear across the world, we need American leadership. We need presidential leadership that's honest, trusted, truthful, and steady. Reassuring leadership. If I'm given the honor of becoming your president, I promise you I'll strive to give the nation that very leadership. Every day, 
Every day, I have a privilege the whole office. That's the reason why I'm running for president. I believe we're in an incredible moment in American history, a phenomenal opportunity to deliver a bold, progressive vision to the American people, guaranteeing that every American has health care, affordable health care, total health care, not a privilege, but a right, building on Obamacare, providing every child access to good education, regardless of their zip code, to deal with the moral depravity of our children who have to learn as they go to school, little children, to duck and cover, zigzag down a hallway because they fear someone with a semi-automatic weapon may be coming in. We have to stand up to the gun manufacturers and to the NRA. And I will do it. We have to rebuild the middle class. We have to rebuild the middle class. And this time, bring everybody along. Everybody along. With Donald Trump as president, our core values, our standing in the world, our very democracy, everything that has made America, America, is truly at stake. I believe this nation can overcome four years of Donald Trump, but given eight, four more years, he'll forever and fundamentally change the very character of this nation. We can't let that happen. But winning means, but winning means uniting America, not sowing more division and anger. It means having a president who not only knows how to fight, but knows how to heal. It means replacing a president who demeans and demonizes people with a president who believes in empathy, compassion, and respect for everyone. It is my hope that the days of divisiveness will soon be over. We're a decent, brave, resilient people. We are better than this moment we're in. We just, what we have to do, we just need, we just need to remember who we are. This is the United States of America. There's not a single thing we cannot do if we do it together. We're on close to the eve of St. Patrick's Day. I'm thought of a, uh, a quote, some of you heard me quote many times, a fellow that I admired very much who passed away not long ago, a poet named Seamus Haney. He wrote a poem called The Cure of Troy. And here's what he said in one stanza. He said, history teaches us not to hope on this side of the grave, but then, once in a lifetime, that long for tidal wave of justice rises up and hope and history rhymes. I truly believe it's within our power for the first time in a long time because of what's happened in the past three years, the power to make hope and history rhyme. That's what we're going to do. God bless you all. And may God protect you. That was Joe Biden offering somewhat muted and subdued televised remarks after his victories in on Tuesday in Michigan, Missouri and Mississippi to a largely empty hall in Philadelphia where fears of coronavirus kept supporters out and only reporters and campaign staffers inside the room. That's who you heard cheering there. 
Bernie Sanders, for his part, did not offer remarks at all on Tuesday night after a disappointing finish for him and his supporters. Instead, he flew back to Vermont, where on Wednesday morning, with questions swirling about whether he would drop out of the Democratic primary race entirely or keep on fighting, Sanders made clear that he intends to stay in the race, at least for now. Let me begin by reiterating what I have said from day one of this campaign. And that is that Donald Trump is the most dangerous president in the modern history of our country, and he must be defeated. Tragically, we have a president today who is a pathological liar and who is running a corrupt administration. He clearly does not understand the Constitution of the United States and thinks that he is a president who is above the law. In my view, he is a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a xenophobe, and a religious bigot, and he must be defeated, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen. Last night, obviously, was not a good night for our campaign from a delegate point of view. We lost in the largest state up for grabs yesterday, the state of Michigan. We lost in Mississippi, Missouri, and Idaho. On the other hand, we won in North Dakota, and we lead the vote count in the state of Washington, the second largest state contested yesterday, with 67% of the votes having been counted. We are a few thousand votes uh, on top. What became even more apparent yesterday is that while we are currently losing the delegate count, approximately 800 delegates for Joe Biden and 660 for us, we are strongly winning in two enormously important areas which will determine the future of our country. Poll after poll, including exit polls, show that a strong majority of the American people support our progressive agenda. But it is not just the ideological debate that our progressive movement is winning. We are winning the generational debate. While Joe Biden continues to do very well with older Americans, especially those people over 65, our campaign continues to win the vast majority of the votes of younger people. And I am talking about people not just in their 20s, but in their 30s and their 40s. The younger generations of this country continue in very strong numbers to support our campaign. Today, I say to the Democratic establishment, in order to win in the future, You need to win the voters who represent the future of our country, and you must speak to the issues of concern to them. You cannot simply be satisfied by winning the votes of people who are older. While our campaign has won the ideological debate, we are losing the debate over electability. I cannot tell you how many people our campaign has spoken to 
who have said, and I quote, I like what your campaign stands for. I agree with what your campaign stands for. But I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because I think Joe is the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump. End of quote. We have heard that statement all over this country. Needless to say, I strongly disagree with that assertion. But that is what millions of Democrats and independents today believe. On Sunday, I very much look forward to the debate in Arizona with my friend Joe Biden. And let me be very frank as to the questions that I will be asking Joe. Joe, what are you going to do for the 500,000 people who go bankrupt in our country because of medically related debt? And what are you going to do for the working people of this country and small business people who are paying on average 20% of their incomes for health care? Joe, what are you going to do to end the absurdity of the United States of America being the only major country on earth where health care is not a human right? Are you really going to veto a Medicare for all bill if it is passed in Congress. Joe, how are you going to respond to the scientists who tell us we have seven or eight years remaining to transform our energy system before irreparable harm takes place to this planet because of the ravages of climate change? Joe, at a time when most young people need a higher education to make it into the middle class, what are you going to do to make sure that all of our people can go to college or trade school regardless of their income? And what are you going to do about the millions of people who are struggling with outrageous levels of student debt? Joe, at a time when we have more people in jail than communist China, a nation four times our size, what are you going to do to end mass incarceration in a racist criminal justice system? And what are you going to do to end the terror that millions of undocumented people experience right now because of our broken and inhumane immigration system? Joe, what are you going to do about the fact that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth and are living with the fact that 500,000 people tonight are homeless and 18 million families are spending half of their income to put a roof over their heads. Joe, importantly, what are you going to do to end the absurdity of billionaires buying elections and the three wealthiest people in America owning more wealth than the bottom half of our people? So let me conclude the way I began. Donald Trump must be defeated, and I will do everything in my power to make that happen. On Sunday night, in the first one-on-one -on -one debate of this campaign, the American people will have the opportunity to see which candidate is best positioned to accomplish that goal. Thank you all very much. 
That was Bernie Sanders Wednesday morning from Vermont, vowing to stay in the race through Sunday's scheduled head-to-head debate with Joe Biden before the next set of primaries on Tuesday in Ohio, Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and be joined by John Nichols to help us figure out what all of this means and where it all goes from here. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At The Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Good question. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Our friend John Nichols at The Nation this afternoon offered an ironic observation. He writes, Tuesday night's big wins for Joe Biden in Michigan, Missouri, and Mississippi came with an ironic twist. The voters did not favor the centrist stances of the former vice president. They preferred the, quote, radical ideals of the candidate that he was defeating, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. On the signature issue of Sanders' campaign, establishing a single-payer Medicare for All system that provides health care to every American as a right, 57% of Michigan voters said they favored a government plan for all instead of private insurance. Just 37% opposed the Sanders position. In Missouri, 59% favored the government plan. In Mississippi, 60% favored the government plan. The voters, according to the exit polls, also agreed with Sanders, not Biden, on a number of other issues, including whether or not the economic system of the United States works well as it is, needs minor changes, or needs a complete overhaul. Again, the electorate tending to align with Sanders, not Biden, but Biden ended up winning all three of those states anyway. So what gives and, yeah, where does this all go from here? Joining us now, post-primary day in six states, Michigan, Washington, Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota, where Joe Biden has continued to grow his delegate lead over Bernie Sanders with apparent wins in Michigan, Missouri, Mississippi, and Idaho on Tuesday, and with Sanders said to have won North Dakota and leading at this hour by just two-tenths of one percent over the former vice president in Washington state as the state's vote-by-mail ballots continue to be tallied. It's our old friend and great progressive journalist John Nichols. He is Washington correspondent for The Nation and associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and the author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Perhaps you should have said in the world. Uh, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, amigo. I am so happy to be with you. (laughs) Crazy world. I'm glad to be in this calm spot. Yes, no one believes you, John. Uh, (laughs) Things... (laughs) 
<laughs> things well, okay. Uh, things have taken uh, quite a turn, I think, since we last spoke. Right after the Iowa caucuses, as I recall, when uh, Bernie Sanders and some guy named Pete Buttigieg were seen to be battling it out for front runner status. Well, Buttigieg is now gone, as are all of the others, other than Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. If you don't count Tulsi Gabbard, who does not seem to even count herself, she has not been campaigning in any of the most recent primary states, as I understand it. So. First, I guess, what is your big takeaway following another very big night for Biden on Tuesday and Sanders' announcement on Wednesday that he intends to stay in the race uh, until at least this Sunday night's first head-to-head debate between the two candidates, uh, although without a live audience due to coronavirus concerns in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona? I, look, you summed it up well. Um, we are headed toward... Um what will probably be the most consequential debate of 2020, mm-hmm. um, with the possible exception, and, and I would make the exception, of the Elizabeth Warren-Mike Bloomberg debate, yeah. which, uh, which it probably tops the list. But, but after that, this one's it, and I suspect it, matters, it will matter more than the fall debates between Trump and, and whoever's nominated at this point, presumably Biden. Mm. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Bernie Sanders has finally started to talk about electability. Mm-hmm. Not in a, you know, kind of a generalized, you know, Sanders beats Trump, Bernie beats Trump, you know, pin or poster, mm-hmm. but in a deeper way. And his, his press conference uh, on the Wednesday afternoon after the uh, Tuesday night of, of many horrors um, <laughs> was was really interesting because he he did a couple of things that were really important. First off, he started out by saying Donald Trump's got to be beat. Mm-hmm. Put that right out, absolutely. And once establishing that framework, said, and it's clear that people think the ideas I'm running on mm-hmm. are ideas that we should do as a country, um, but they're not sure if this is the the way, or I'm the guy to beat Trump. And basically, and again, I'm translating a little bit here, mm-hmm. but, and I understand all that, and, but I'm not so sure Joe Biden's the guy. Right. And so on Sunday, I want to, you know, let's, let's have a little throwdown here. Let's talk about why the issues I'm running on are so popular. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about why young people are so enthusiastic about this campaign and some other groups of folks. Um, Let's also talk maybe about how the media creates an image of electability that might not be precisely accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to put my you know cards on the table, and I'm going to invite Joe Biden to do the same. And that's that's exactly the debate that should be had right now. Yeah, very very rare that you have the debate you should have at the proper time. And the one final thing I'll throw on is I believe that Bernie Sanders, in doing that, left himself an exit ramp, and left Biden an entry ramp, right? How's it that? doesn't mean, well, because he essentially told Biden what Biden's got to do. It's you know, a, in order no to win his, in, in order, what he's got to do in order to win uh, Bernie's support and the support of uh, Bernie's supporters? I don't think it's Bernie's support. I think it's really the movement. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That, and I think, because Bernie, whether, whether you like Bernie Sanders or not, he's mm-hmm. always been a movement guy. Mm-hmm. His, roots, his roots are there. 
And so I don't think he's so much talking about his own endorsement or exactly like a day he would decide to carry on or decide not to. I think he's really talking about, can Joe Biden make the connection? And I don't think this is about some sort of mean-spirited or, you know, anti-Biden thing. Right. Um, I genuinely think that what Sanders is proposing is a debate where um, if Joe Biden really steps up, Mm -hmm. he's going to narrow the lane for Bernie Sanders, which is already very narrow, right? You know, we we understand the dynamics of politics. Mm -hmm. If Joe Biden really steps up, um, he's got a lot of opportunities here. It really is his sort of entry lane into the fall campaign. And so when you say steps up, you're talking about steps up by reaching out to uh, Bernie's movement and to those things that uh, not only Bernie believes in, but apparently the uh, electorate, at least the Democratic electorate in these uh, various primary states, also agrees with uh, radical mm-hmm. reform of the economy, uh, government, uh, single payer health care plan and so forth. And and giving yeah. Sanders, the op- um, Biden, the opportunity to say, OK, bring us on board. We'll come on board with you, but you got to give us a, a ramp to get there. Is that sort exactly. of what, yeah. it, it, Precisely, and, and, and Sanders not saying, bring me on board, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't think Sanders can necessarily deliver the whole of his movement, mm-hmm. or the movement you know what I mean? Right. But it's, it's like, bring the movements on board, and it's all going to, you know, this will sort out. Is and, Joe Biden is Joe Biden up to that challenge? Well, if he isn't, then is he the right candidate? You know what I mean? Because yeah. if, you if you can't build your movement when you, you know, if you can't build your, your coalition, right? Right. And you can only do it by, by kind of forcing people mm-hmm. to make choices, right, rather than, you know, inspiring or exciting people. Then that's a problematic situation. And let me give you a quick example, Brett, and yeah. then, you know, very, very fast. Um, in 1968, what if, you know, in the summer of 68 after Bobby Kennedy was killed, if Eugene McCarthy, the last remaining prominent anti-war candidate at that point, had said to Hubert Humphrey, and I think he basically did, I said, you know, hey, Hubert Humphrey, let's have a debate. And if you can convince, if you can make a convincing argument that you're the guy to take forward this anti-war movement, mm-hmm. this movement, you know, really change what the Democratic Party is about against Richard Nixon, you know, well, let's, let's see where it goes. And I'll tell you something. If Humphrey had done that and gone mm-hmm. into that debate and actually tried to rise to the occasion, he probably would have ended up as president of the United States. Mm. And that, I guess that remains uh, the, the great unknown. I mean, there's, actually, there's a lot of great unknowns here. Yeah. I, I, and I got to say, you know, it was somewhat bizarre, John, watching that sort of sub- subdued victory speech for, for Biden on uh, Tuesday night in a near empty hall in Philadelphia uh, with just media and campaign staff because of the okay. coronavirus concerns. But I actually think that it worked. To Biden's benefit, it actually made him seem calmer, so more sober, more presidential, which is a very different look, I thought, than the sort of frenetic, stuttering, forgetting his words Joe Biden that we've seen so much of late in in both uh, debates and at campaign rallies. Um, do, do you agree with me there? I think that, I think what Biden did on Tuesday night was one of the better... Uh, presentations he's made in his political career. Mm-hmm. And that is a big deal when you're running for president of the United States to rise to the occasion at, at the point where people are actually paying attention to you. That does matter. Um, it's, part of what, it's part of what makes a presidential candidate. Why was it so good? Well, it, it wasn't that it, there was soaring rhetoric. In fact, it was a very sort of downbeat, 
very calm mm-hmm. uh, presentation. It wasn't that it was, you know, perfectly constructed. Mm-hmm. There, you know, as usual with him, there was repetition, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. But it was the calm yeah. and the seriousness. Yeah. And when you're running against Donald Trump, who is pure chaos, mm-hmm. there are two ways to run against him, right? Mm-hmm. To, you know, maybe create a louder chaos, right? Or, you know, an alternative poll, and I understand that. But another way is to simply say, take a deep breath and say, you know what? This guy's all over the place, doesn't know what's going on. I do. Yeah. I know what matters. And I think it's, that... It's a powerful presentation. Yeah, and I and I think that might work better for him uh, rather than, I mean, up till now, I've sort of been, uh, you know, thinking that, oh, it's, it's 50-50 if Biden is the nominee. It's a pretty much 50-50 odds that uh, a debate between him and Trump will turn into fisticuffs at this point. Yeah, well, as <laughs> we saw from that auto plant, I think it was the, the place where he was yeah. with the workers. Yeah. Um, he got pretty close to that. Yeah. And, and I, I just give you a quick example. Yeah. Um, years ago, I was covering a congressional race between a very dynamic mayor who was challenging a pretty boring member of Congress. Mm-hmm. And the mayor, and the member of Congress, very smart, said to the mayor, yeah, you go first. Mayor gave this kind of ranting and raving and very impassioned and pretty exciting presentation. Mm-hmm. And then the congressman gets up from behind the table they were sitting at, walks around to the front of it, sits against the table, leans in, and very calmly says, let me tell you what's going on here. Paul and I agree on a lot of issues, and we actually like each other, but he's running against me, and he feels he has to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to level with you on what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty good guy. I just think I'd do a better job. Well, that congressman won overwhelmingly. Uh, yeah. And you know uh, what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And I think if, if uh, Biden can resist the uh, the urge to, uh, to get all excited and excitable, I mean, frankly, a sleepy Joe is a much better Joe than frenetic <laughs> Joe at this point, it seems to me. Now, that said, uh, John, there were uh, just a ton of very good candidates, frankly, in the Democratic primary, a ton of them. Some I like better than others. Some I agreed with their policies more than others. But all of the candidates, you know, who to win the nomination in an election year when defeating Donald Trump is the top priority, uh, just on a personal level, all of those candidates at least seem to me capable of defeating Donald Trump for several reasons. All of them, I should say, but Donald Trump. I'm sorry, but Joe Biden, as far as beating Donald Trump. He actually seems to me the least likely to be able to beat, uh, to defeat Trump. Um, but apparently Americans disagree so far with me. You've spent time on the ground in these primary states talking to voters. What are American voters seeing in Joe Biden that I am not? Just what we were talking about a moment ago. It's that stability. It's that sense of, you know, somebody kind of knows their way around and, you know, isn't going to probably do 90 percent of what you want, but might have might be able to beat Trump and you know, might manage things in a relatively responsible way. Um, that is incredibly uninspiring. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? It's sort of like, and it's dangerous. I would say, look, you know, we've just said some nice things about Biden. Let me suggest this other notion. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous to, you know, say that we're kind of gonna we're kind of gonna bore our way to victory, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, because I've seen that that game played before, and sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, and uh, my gut instinct is that, um, well, I should say gut instinct, my, my values mm-hmm. suggest that this is the time for, for three things. 
uh, we ought to have a woman president. Mm-hmm. We ought to, have a, ought to have a person of color. Mm-hmm. And we ought to have somebody who is really, you know, prepared to kind of upend a lot of our status quo politics. Mm-hmm. you got to put those three things together. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, when you talk about all those candidates you liked, yeah. um, you definitely had some incredible women running. Yep. Um, you definitely uh, had some incredible, you had incredible African-American candidates. You mm-hmm. had an incredible Latino candidate in Julian Castro. Um an Asian-American candidate, Andrew Yang, who actually brought a lot of issues to the table and very, mm-hmm. very well. Um, so you have diversity there and, and things that I think are really important for the Democratic coalition and, frankly, for the you know where our country is going. And then you had people who want to sort of upend the status quo, both in Elizabeth Warren, I think, uh, and also Bernie Sanders, getting into that deeper structural argument. And, and, you know, the painful thing about it is that election years often give us these you know, kind of multiple lanes, but mm-hmm. maybe not all together. Um, well, and but, but, so we're, we're, we're stuck with what we're stuck with, basically. Well, but, I, you know, when, when I say, I know, but when I say, you know, all of those candidates uh, seem to me to have a better chance of beating Donald Trump, I'm talking about even people who I, I didn't care for. I would have had more confidence, John, in Mike Bloomberg going up against Donald Trump, and I find his politics quite often, you know, appalling. Uh, in, in contrast to most of Biden's, which are just sort of meh. But I might have felt more comfortable with him, with with uh, Bloomberg running against Trump, than I am right now uh, with Joe Biden, at least until I saw his calm presidential performance in Philadelphia. We'll see if we if he can keep that up uh, on Tuesday night. But, John, let, let me ask... You're on, on Sunday night. Sunday night. Well, right. Uh, his his performance on Tuesday. See if he can continue that through Sunday. Yeah. Do it again on Sunday in the yeah. debate. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, is it unfair, John, to say that uh, we may be seeing in this year's primary that no small part of Sanders' 2016 support was actually anti-Hillary rather than necessarily necessarily pro-Sanders, which is something that I was very concerned with at the time in 2016 when a lot of Sanders were saying, well, look how uh, you know well he's, he's doing, look how popular he would be versus Donald Trump, you know, instead of Hillary. Was a lot of Hillary's support, I'm sorry, Sanders' support really anti-Hillary support back in, uh, in 2016? There's a rough mix. I think that that's the way to say it. Um, yeah, I think there's an element there. Uh, let's say a couple of blunt things right up front. First off, was there a lot of sexism, right? Mm-hmm. And and literally um, disregarding a woman uh, for the worst of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that I think that was there. Uh, we saw that, and we even saw that you know going into the November election where where you know people sometimes actually acknowledged it. They didn't think a woman should be in charge, um, and so. There was a there was a sexism factor separate and apart from Hillary Clinton. Um, then there was also a uh, the the reality, fair or not, to Clinton that she carried a lot of the baggage mm-hmm. from previous administrations going back. You know, she was a Secretary of State. She was also a a senator who voted for the Iraq War. She was very, very highly engaged with her husband's administration, which did, frankly, especially in a state like Michigan, a lot of trade policies that people didn't like. So you put all these pieces together and you say, well, where is the intersection between sexism and, you know, genuine disagreements mm-hmm. with somebody, right? Um, and and we just know that that's, there's, there's something there. And then the final element was, 
that basically our media said, well, Bernie Sanders can't win, mm-hmm. right? All the way through that 16 campaign yeah. until, you know, sort of So here you got, you know, it's okay, whatever your reason, you can vote for this other guy, right? You know, and he's kind of spirited and he's having an interesting campaign, raising a lot of ideas and stuff like that, some of which sound pretty good. So, yeah, I do think there was, you know, we have to acknowledge, especially when you look at at rural areas of a lot of these states where he was sweeping rural areas, Mm -hmm. and then this time Biden ends up doing very well. I think there's something there. But I want to really strongly emphasize also something else that's separate and apart from this. I think a lot of people did vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and are voting for him now because they believe in his critique Mm -hmm. and because they believe in him as a person. And I think that they are... That's a very well-grounded vote. That's a, that's a very sound vote. But there's one other intervening factor between 2016 and 2020, and that is Donald Trump. You know, in 2016, when you're looking at that in those primaries, when people are choosing between Clinton and Sanders, yeah. um, it was just a different dynamic. Now the dynamic is people uh, who might well have voted very happily for Sanders and proudly for Sanders in 16 are this time perhaps because the media's beaten it into them, or yeah. whatever pressures, they're saying, uh, I guess I just can't go with what I believe in. I'm going to go with, quote-unquote, electability. Yeah, and, you know, you wrote uh, a few days ago, uh, John Nichols, at The Nation about how, uh, how the coronavirus is also shaking up this election. Josh Marshall uh, writes, I think today, at Talking Points Memo, he says the dynamics were pretty clearly in place before the coronavirus took over the national conversation, but it's hard not to think a national climate of fear and risk aversion is helping solidify or accelerate the trend in Biden's favor. Uh, that makes sense on one level. He is, you know, sort of seen as a steady and a known entity. And uh, Sanders, you know, would obviously come in and shake things up. And a lot of people have had enough shaking up, even though, ironically, Bernie Sanders shaking up would include things like health care for all, which would probably make dealing with this coronavirus epidemic a lot easier. And maybe paid sick leave. Yeah, and paid sick leave. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So there are a lot of ironies, uh, some of which you point out in uh, your piece today at The Nation. Biden prevails even though voters prefer Bernie's ideas. It's going to be a very interesting few days, weeks, and uh, months ahead of us. John Nichols, he is Washington correspondent for The Nation. Of course, find his work at thenation.com and follow him on the Twitters at Nichols uprising yes as the uprising continues john always great talking with you my friend we will do it again soon i suspect it's such a pleasure to be with you my friend thank you okay we got to get out my thanks (laughs) to our producer desi doyan to Mm -hmm. all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's show or any other download it anytime for free at bradblog.com a service made possible by those of you who help support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to make a one-time donation or a uh, automated uh, one monthly do- uh, donation of any amount you like. Thank you. If you'd like to drop me an email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you will find, follow, and share everything, and, or at least say hello on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.